0: 1 again this morning, we'll look at the seven, second half of that chapter. When I was, I think it was when I was 29, I was arrested and put in jail. And the short version of the story, if I remember it correctly, is that I had failed to complete a defensive driving uh, course for a speeding ticket that I got and there was a warrant out for my arrest as a result me and Melissa got pulled over on our way to church one Sunday morning kid you not Uh, we were running late pretty sure I was going fast Uh, or maybe our stickers were out I don't remember exactly Uh, when they ran they pulled us over and when they ran the license the warrant showed up and so they cuffed me and they put me in the car I was taken to the city lockup Uh, Did all the things, photographed, fingerprinted, uh, all the usual stuff. Uh, Meanwhile, Melissa had to find a way to gather the money to get me out. Uh, It was a lot of money for us at the time. Uh, Definitely more than we had uh, sitting around anywhere. Uh, And as a result, it took her a while to get the funds. And I was made to stay in a cold holding cell that they had in the city lockup there for hours several hours before she finally worked everything out and got me released. I hated that experience. I hated it. I hated being in there, uh, even though it was my own fault. I sat there and I cursed myself and I cursed the sheriff's deputy who had originally given me the ticket outside of Brady, Texas, uh, for not slowing down quickly enough as I entered the edge of town. I cursed the city of Richardson police for pulling us over as I desperately tried to make it to church. I felt worthless, like I had let everyone I knew down, and that my life would be wrecked and ruined from that point forward because I'd have this thing on my record. And not once during my detention or any of the things that were going on did I think of the gospel. Not once. Not once did I experience a moment of joy while thinking about how I was being given an opportunity to tell anyone I came in contact with through that experience about Jesus. Not once did I consider the way that my church would end up bearing with me. I only thought of myself and all my thoughts were negative. Now granted, I wasn't incarcerated for telling people about Jesus like Paul had been, but that was the furthest thing from my mind, even though I had been on my way to Sunday school and worship. This week, as I was thinking about Paul being put in jail for proclaiming the gospel, and about my own experience with being in jail, I I wondered how often do we view things that happen to us, the things that we experience in our lives, as providing opportunity for living out the gospel and sharing it with others, especially the negative stuff. How often do we think about our own lives as part of something bigger than just us, rather than thinking of salvation in terms of our own individual rescue, as if God is part of our story and not the other way around? as if it's all about me. And even beyond that, how often do we confront the things that we experience with joy? Or find a way to experience joy as we go through them? How big a role does joy have in our lives? These are the ideas we're going to consider this morning as we dig into this text. So follow along with me, if you will, as we read from Philippians 1, beginning in verse 12. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel, so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, That for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake. Engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have. May God bless the reading of this word. Okay, so having finished his greeting, Paul launched into his purpose in writing letter explaining how his imprisonment and everything connected to it had advanced the gospel and he had been beaten and locked up and he would used it as an opportunity to tell people that a Jewish rabbi named Jesus who had been crucified was alive again and was king. All the guards who interacted with him heard that message Think about that. This group of soldiers whose entire lives were dedicated to Caesar and to Rome and all of its ideas and that way of life and worship and all the things that came with it, who may have never heard about Jesus or at the very least any version of the events other than the official Roman version— If you remember reading in Matthew, it's the one where the guards at the tomb were paid to tell uh, the story where where he was crucified by Pilate and then his body was stolen from the tomb by some of his followers. That's the official Roman story. That, That may have been all they'd ever heard. But Paul had a chance no one else may have ever had to tell these soldiers that Jesus was in fact alive. How many times have we been put into situations where we have the opportunity to tell people the good news of Jesus and his kingdom and we shy away because we are afraid or we don't want to be embarrassed or rejected or something like that? How have the things we have gone through served to advance the gospel? For example, most of us have been in the hospital for some reason or other at some point or another, in a situation that we would probably rather not be in? Have we engaged that situation as an opportunity to tell our doctors and nurses and whoever else we may come in contact with about Jesus? I look back on the various times I've been in that kind of situation and how often I've completely failed to think about it as a possibility. Like all the medical personnel, we're just sort of background noise in the story of Kent. Hmm. Necessary to my story for a moment or two, but really nothing more. Not part of a larger story. How often do we interact with people that way? At the grocery checkout, or the fast food drive through or the feed store, or any place where we have the chance to interact with people and talk to them? Do we view those moments as opportunities to love people, to show kindness, to display Jesus in our actions, to open up a conversation? I'm not saying we need to have a mindset where we are going to go out and convince everyone that we are right and they're wrong, and that our beliefs are the only true beliefs, or anything like that. I'm saying, do we care enough about people to treat them like Jesus did? Do the events of our lives and the situations we find ourselves in advance the gospel? Do the people around us know that our faith is in Jesus? Because that's what we see in this situation with Paul, And it's why those around him were becoming more bold. As we move into verses 15 through 18, there's some difference of opinion about who uh, Paul is referring to. There are those who think he met a group we call the Judaizers, uh, those who professed to trust in and follow Jesus, but still enforced the Old Testament laws and customs, and saw them as a requirement for being part of the kingdom even for the Gentiles. It's possible that they were jealous of Paul and had adjusted their way of evangelizing to sort of mimic his in order to try and win more converts than he did. But they did all of this out of envy, rivalry, and selfish ambition. Now others think this specific group were actually pagans who had heard the message Paul was proclaiming and were repeating it sort of incredulously or dismissively. Uh, something along the lines of, hey, have you heard about this guy telling everyone there is a new king named Jesus who was crucified outside of Jerusalem is supposedly alive again and reigning over the whole earth? Sort of that tone and way of talking. But whichever way we look at it, whoever we sort of think these people may be, There are people who were talking about Jesus and Paul seemed excited about it. And he also wanted to recognize those who did it out of a sense of love. He makes a point of that. But above all, he wanted people talking about Jesus. And that's at least part of what gave him joy, that the message of Jesus being alive and being king was starting to get around, spreading to more and more places. People who might not have heard yet were beginning to hear things were moving. We live in a time when it seems like nearly everyone has heard of Jesus, as if maybe a few hard-to-reach tribal groups are the only ones left to tell. But alongside the undeniable reality that our world is becoming far less involved with church comes the reality that fewer people are hearing about Jesus. Even those who do, they often only see and hear what Christians think about culture or politics instead of the death, resurrection, and reign of Jesus Christ. And what Christians think about culture and politics may be important, but it's never saved or transformed anyone. Which brings us back to why Paul was rejoicing. Jesus was being proclaimed. Even through what Paul was experiencing, which wasn't a good thing for him, it wasn't a positive experience, but he was confident that whatever happened to him, he would be delivered. That's the word he used, whether in life or in death. That the good news would be announced. He wanted to be sure that Christ would be honored either way. How many of us today have that kind of faith, a faith that regards Jesus more highly than our own survival? I mean, it's not impossible, right? We don't have to even look very far to find such faith. It still exists in people all over the world in in difficult situations. Just a few years ago, anti-Christian militia in the Central African Republic tracked down a pastor named John Paul Senkwe in the sanctuary where he prayed a little church that he had built and they killed him and they looted the building and they set it on fire and the thing is this kind of activity in that area wasn't new pastor Senkwe planted the church in a volatile area in 1993 and had consistently loved people and proclaimed Jesus As king in that environment, he knew the risk he faced. But he was determined to carry out his calling whether he lived or died because he was convinced, just as Paul was, that people need to hear the gospel. Paul wasn't afraid of death. In fact, there's a sense that he welcomed it. Not that he had a death wish or was suicidal, nothing like that. But if his time came, he was ready. And he also knew that it would be better for the believers he was still teaching if he remained alive, at least for a while. So what about us? If we take an honest look at our own lives and way of thinking, are we anything like Paul? Are we consistently telling others about Jesus? We don't, none of us face real persecution But are we courageous in the face of rejection and embarrassment? Are we willing to take risks for the sake of the gospel? If it means people will hear about Jesus and have their lives changed? Are we willing to go into difficult situations and remain there for extended periods of time just so people will know the love of Jesus? Pastor Sinka, we follow God's calling into a volatile neighborhood? Are we willing to follow God's calling into the lives of our neighbors in a way that shows them the love of God and opens doors for the good news? Paul was convinced that he would be around a little while longer, and that the result would be progress and joy in the faith for the Philippian believers, which means Paul understood faith as a journey a process, a path forward. In other words, conversion was not the end of things, it was only the beginning. Salvation isn't a one-time deal, it's an ongoing process. It unfolds over time as we grow to be more like Christ. Now, that may happen at a different place for all of us, a different pacing, but the main idea is the same. We should look more like Jesus today than we did yesterday, and we should look more like Jesus tomorrow than we do today. And one of the things we see in both Jesus' life and then reflected in Paul's own is that they had a deep joy in the middle of their most difficult experiences. It seems that's why Paul joined these ideas of progress and joy together. He meant for the Philippians to understand Joy in adversity as a sort of gauge of their progress. In other words, when they experienced hardship, what was their response? This applies to us as well. How do we respond to pain and suffering? How do we respond to danger and misfortune? How do we respond to obstacles and complex situations? I'm not saying we can't be frustrated or sad. We know Jesus experienced both of those feelings. But there was a deep joy anchoring all of it together. Is that what it looks like in our lives? Is joy the heart of our experience as believers? I think this is what Paul meant when he told the Philippian believers to let their manner of life be worthy of the gospel. That's not a statement about how moral he wanted them to be or how perfect or how well-dressed on Sunday morning or how many Bible studies they had to attend or whether they went out dancing on Saturday night or drank a beer or cursed or any of that sort of stuff. It's not any of that. A life worthy of the gospel is a life rooted in joy. Joy in knowing we are loved and forgiven and being made whole, joy in experiencing the presence of God living inside of us, joy in the promise of a larger story that is already unfolding. So many Christians seem to have this idea that being worthy means being perfect or acting a certain way, never doing anything wrong, but that's not what makes us worthy. If it is, well then the gospel is not about Jesus. It's about us, because we are the active force in that story. We are the ones making the change. But Scripture tells a different story. It reveals that our efforts can't possibly make us righteous. And it reveals that our worthiness comes from the value our Heavenly Father placed on us when He created us. The Father cares deeply for us, not based on whether we can be good enough enough, but based solely on our being His. So living a life worthy of the gospel means living a life of joy, resting in the fact that we are beloved. Because too many, of it, too many of us have it in our heads that we have to try to impress God somehow, that we have to make God love us by doing all the right things. But God already loves us, that's exactly what we find in 1 John four nineteen, where we read that we love because he first loved us. And that whole chapter of 1 John spells it out in great detail that God loved us and that's why Jesus became one of us. So when we talk about letting our manner of life be worthy of the gospel, and I'm not saying be as bad as you want it'll all be fine. That's not my point. I'm saying we need to rest in the work of Christ, what he has already done, and then give the Holy Spirit the space to make us new. Because it's not people who act perfect that are living in a manner worthy of the gospel. It's people acknowledging their desperate need, rejoicing in the forgiveness offered through Jesus and sharing the good news of forgiveness in him with others we're doing this, if we are collectively rejoicing in the love of God and his forgiveness, then aren't we standing firm in one's spirit and mind, like Paul said? If we are focused on Jesus and his kingdom instead of all the other noise we tend to get distracted by, then aren't we striving together side by side for the faith, just like Paul said? Our unity is not in good deeds or even in good doctrinal stances or current events. It's in the work of Christ. And if we are all on board with that, all the other stuff, all the secondary stuff, can't divide us. And those who would divide us have no foothold. But are we committed to that? Are we willing to join hands with people who may baptize differently than we do? Are we willing to team up with people who have different ideas about ordinances and sacraments and all those sorts of things? Can Baptists and Methodists and Presbyterians and folks from the Assembly of God and all the rest get along? I think so. Isn't that what we have right here in our congregation? Can we disagree about secondary things and still come together together on what matters? Now, I've experienced the kind of divisiveness that would tear us apart. I'm guessing we all have at some point or another. And I'm not saying we should just ignore all our differences to get along. Paul wanted the Philippians to strive together for the gospel. Do we want the same Are we more interested in the good news of Jesus being proclaimed to those who need to hear it, or are we more interested in being right about everything? Does everyone have to agree with us on all the various aspects of faith, or can we get together behind the simple gospel of Jesus, the crucified and risen king of all creation? Isn't that strong enough to hold us together, I wonder sometimes. I mean, I really hope it is. I believe it can be. If the kingdom is a matter of perfect doctrine, it's going to be a lonely place. If it's a matter of perfect people, it's going to be sparsely inhabited. But if it's a matter of people coming together because of the death, resurrection, and reign of Jesus Christ, people being loved, and forgiven and healed and made whole and then given hope by the power of the Holy Spirit as a result of what Jesus has done? Aren't we all willing to be a part of that? As Paul continued his thought, he circled back around to his current situation and he relayed his understanding of the relationship between faith in Jesus and suffering. Based on what he wrote, it seems like Paul expected there to be suffering, as if that were part of what it meant to be in Christ, and a part of this new kingdom that was breaking into the world. This is a hard concept for us, not because we don't know suffering. I'm sure all of us have gone through some difficult things. But how much of our suffering has come as a direct result of proclaiming the gospel? We know that's what Paul meant here because that was the situation he was in and it's what he meant when he said it was the same conflict he had. We don't really understand this kind of suffering. It's doubtful that any of us have ever really experienced it. So what do we do with Paul? With what Paul said here? How do we grasp and apply verses 29 and 30? Well, notice that Paul said, it has been granted to you, to the Philippians. I think that's the key. Living in that time and cultural, political context meant being a follower of Jesus and proclaiming him as the living king would inevitably put them at odds with the world around them. We don't live in that time or that cultural, political context. We may face opposition for our faith here and there. I think we do. But outside of a few isolated instances of violence against believers here in the US, our lives really could not possibly look more different from theirs. Which means we need to take the principle of what Paul wrote and then apply it to our situation as well as we are able. What kind of suffering for the gospel do we face here in our country for what we believe? I'm not talking about all the conspiracy conspiracy theories, and all that sort of stuff. On a daily basis in your everyday life, how are you suffering for the sake of the gospel of Jesus Christ? Maybe it's developing a willingness to be rejected by people who who we care about when we tell them about Jesus and his love and forgiveness. Maybe it's setting aside whatever embarrassment we think may come our way for consistently talking about him. Maybe it's not being offended when non-believers act like non-believers. Maybe it's not getting insulted and upset when people don't believe like we do. Because it's almost as if Christians in America think we have some sort of right to get our feelings hurt and get enraged anytime our cultural and political world doesn't cater to us. It's like we've been spoiled by all those years of the church having power. But that's we need. And as that wanes and the church becomes increasingly feeble in the halls of power, how we respond is going to matter. If we act like we are owed something just because we are Christians, our faith is not going to shine. We need the humility to understand that for the first few hundred years of the faith, we were a minority with no rights and no privileges the things go that route again which they certainly sort of seem to be we need the humility to continue gracefully loving people and telling them about Jesus and not acting and reacting out of pride like anyone owes us anything because they don't we owe them because Jesus loves them which means we are called to love them which means we should be willing to humble ourselves and be servants to all. Instead of pounding our fists for our rights as American citizens and chasing after our own desires, we should be willing to be sacrificial servants just like Jesus. I'm sort of getting ahead of the text here. That's for next week. For now. Let's focus on how we can come together as one in one mind, and one spirit, and joyfully rest in the work of Jesus, who died and was raised and is seated at the right hand of the Father. Will you pray with me?